so let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, okay? And we're going to go to verse 13, all right? And if I could think of a title for this, it would be The Road Less Traveled, okay? Or maybe the crossroads, but I think the road less traveled because Jesus says it is a less traveled road. And for a long time, when I thought of this passage or I heard this passage, I thought of salvation and not being saved. Going to heaven, going to hell. There it is. Okay, nice little package. But within its context, and this is why reading the word of God in its context and like we're doing sometimes, take big chunks, we get the big picture and the big focus, okay? And that's what we see here. This is much bigger than just heaven or hell, all right? This is life, okay? So it's chapter 7 of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And it's, like I said, really easy to say, oh, okay, so, all right, so the narrow gate, so that's Jesus. And so if we enter through Jesus, we have eternal life and we go to heaven. Yes, that's true. But there's a bigger picture here. And the gate to destruction, the gate to hell, boy, it's an easy, broad path. You can pretty much do anything and everything you want to do and chart that course. But Jesus is talking about a way of life, okay? that's tied to our relationship with him. When Jesus was ascending to the Father, before he did, you remember that he said, go and preach the gospel to all nations, right? Go and preach the gospel. And he said, go and make disciples, right? But we live in a time, and it's been this way, I think, pretty much from the start of the church, okay? But the gospel is not always preached, okay? And we have this tendency to, it's, it's not even so much a go. We expect people to come, and it's make converts of people or make church members of people how many people do we have in our church and being a pastor and doing things like pastors lunches and things like that and going to those things you would hear those questions well how many people are you running now how many people you got going and you hear it even even within the church and and you know, it's, it's like, well, how many people are going to that Bible study? Well, how many people are going to that prayer meeting? Well, how many, you know, and numbers, you know, because we associate success with numbers. But that's not always the case. 
And so we have this weird mindset where we're thinking if we have members, we automatically have Christians. If we have people in the pews, we have people who are saved. We're going to see that that's not the case. Okay? And that might be a little unnerving to hear, but there's a path to be lived. When it says that the, the gate is narrow, okay, think of it more like a straight, okay, not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, straight, but a straight like the Strait of Hormuz or the Strait of Gibraltar, a very narrow place. And there is no other way to get from point A to point B without going through the strait. So if you're in the Atlantic Ocean and you want to go into the Mediterranean, you have to go through the Strait of Gibraltar. If you want to go up into the Middle East, and all you have to go through the Strait of Hormuz. Very narrow. That's why these places are so strategic militarily and for commerce. Because if you want to get to that place, there's only one way in. That's it. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, there's only one way in. You've got this broad ocean, this gigantic landscape or seascape. But if you want to get into that harbor, there's only one way to go. And it's through Jesus Christ. Well, people say that's too narrow-minded. Well, that's because the way is narrow. The thing about this is, do you notice here that the gate comes before the path? Do you notice that? The gate comes before the path. And so when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it says that the path it's hard. It's not a good word, okay? The path is narrow, okay? The door is narrow. It's Jesus alone. And the path on the other side of that door is narrow. It's confined. It's constricted. Well, how confined is it? How tight is it? Well, it's the path of Christ. It's discipleship. And we're going to see that as we go through the context that surrounds all this. We live in a time where disciples are not made in the church for the most part. You got attendees, members, converts, whatever you want to call them. But to actually be a disciple means to walk the path of Christ. Remember, he says, I am the way. And so if we're going to be a disciple, like he talks about here, it's a very narrow way. And people don't like that. They want the broad way, which is easy. Do what you want to do. But see, the broad way is the way that leads to destruction. And it's not just being an unbeliever. As soon as you try to add more to Christ or deviate from Christ, and we try to broaden that, that walk, well, yeah, I can do this, or yeah, I can still do that, or let's add some legalism, or let's add this. As soon as we try to broaden that path, then we start going sideways and get off track, okay? 
So as we go through this passage, these passages, let's keep in mind that this is a matter of discipleship. Jesus is the way in and the path is narrow. It is the path of discipleship, walking the walk. And this is one of the things that so many people outside the church or have issues with the church state that Christians will talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. You say one thing, you live another. It reminds me of, of Gandhi, and some of you maybe hear, heard me say this before. When he was asked about Christianity, Gandhi's response was, you're Jesus, I like. His followers, I don't. Jesus I like, his followers I don't. And I think it's because we have so much emphasis on just getting people into church, getting numbers, making people feel good, rather than actually discipling people. Because a disciple is one who patterns their life and conduct and thinking in line with their teacher. And that is where we find Jesus pouring into the people here as he covers this stuff. Remember, Matthew is writing to Jews and each one of these gospel authors are combining things together to bring certain points and points of emphasis together. So go over to chapter five and we're gonna look at the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of this stuff we know, okay? We know this stuff. But think of it in the context of discipleship, of the narrow way, because that's what Jesus is laying out here beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. Christianity is not just a belief system. It is a life system, right? The Lord wants us to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's what scripture tells us. Last week, Josiah was teaching, and he taught on how, you know, that when we speak the truth in love, we pour into the things of God into each other so that we might grow up into the maturity and the person of Christ to be more like him. Jesus tells us to make disciples, those who walk according to his way. And that way is what is brought out here, okay? So chapter 5, verse 1 the Sermon on the Mount. And I won't, I won't delve deeply into it. We know this. But look at what it says. All right. And I want us to go just up to chapter 4, verse 25 to kind of get a running start. All right. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Don't think, oh, it's the 12. They're a part of it. But remember, there were a lot of people who were following Jesus. They were really liking a lot of things he was doing. He was feeding them. He was healing them. He was casting out demons. He was teaching them. And they're like, hey, this is really great. There will come a time when Jesus really gets down to the brass tacks of discipleship and following him and the majority of the disciples leave. 
They say, this is too hard, we're out of here. And Jesus says to the disciples, the 12, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter, in one of his good moments, says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. There is no place else to go. So don't think we're talking about just 12. There is a large group of people. There's the crowd, you know, just kind of coming here and there to, to see the show from time to time, see what's being said. There's another group that is actually following consistently, trying to dial in on this and be a part of this. And it is to these people that Jesus begins to speak. Verse 2 of chapter 5, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So he's got the disciples, this big throng of followers, and he begins to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a spirit that is humble and re recognizes that, hey, I have a need. I am spiritually poor, okay? Blessed are those who mourn. They have a penitent heart, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. That does not mean weak or wimpy, okay? Meek is used for an animal, a very strong animal, that is under the authority of its master. It's used quite often for war horses, okay? A lot of power, but they are meek. They are controlled and submissive to their master, okay? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's all these blessings that Jesus starts out with, okay? Blessed are you when you have this heart, okay? This is the heart of a disciple. And then it goes into the life of a disciple. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt pre preserves, right? It's a preservative. Christians should bring a preserving factor of decency and morality and, and, and goodness and the fruits of the Spirit into wherever they're at. We should have a preservative aspect to our lives. Salt is also a disinfectant. It kills germs, okay? It's purifying. Christians should have a purifying, not that we go in holier than thou or anything like that, but we live a life that brings a purity wherever we go that people can see, all right? And salt adds flavor. People are looking for flavor in life. They want, they're chasing the spice of life, okay? But, you know, the spice of life, once it's gone, it's gone. But salt preserves. We as believers can show people what life is really about. And Jesus is going to talk about that. And then he says in 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light, the life of a disciple, being like Jesus, okay? And then he goes and he says, that uh, he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. This is verse 17. But he says he came to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say unto, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, the Jews were like, I keep the law. Remember the rich young ruler? Okay. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I got to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, honor your father. And he did all the, the horizontal, the family stuff, okay? Oh, I've kept all that from my youth. I've got it. Okay, one thing you lack. Sell everything, follow me. That's it. But because of his love for his wealth and his possessions, he walked away from Christ. That was his God. And he didn't want to part with it. It was easy for the Jews, the Pharisees, when Jesus says, you know, here he says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. The people are like, are you kidding me? That's like saying, you know, you have to be more righteous than Billy Graham. Well, he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't hypocritical. Sorry about that. But the, the, the Pharisees were legalistic and they were, you know, they were like the poster children for righteousness, okay? And then they're being told, you've got to be more righteous than that. But see, their understanding of the law was skewed. The Pharisees were like, I've kept it all. That was Saul's heart, Paul, okay? I kept the law perfectly. I did everything I was supposed to do. So Jesus hits on that and he says, okay, let's look at that law. And so in verse 21, he says, hey, you've been taught, the law says you shall not murder, right? And so everybody could say, I've never murdered. I'm good. And Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of it because the heart's the same. You know, how many of us have had the thought, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill her. Now, you may not mean it, and you may not do it, but there is an attitude of anger and harshness and all. And Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of that very thing. Now, are you keeping the law? Uh-oh. How about adultery? And they would say, hey, I've never committed adultery. Jesus goes, all right. Now, if you look after a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of adultery. Oh, well, I've never done that. Hmm, okay. Well, there's also divorce. If you've been divorced, except for the reason of unfaithfulness in that marriage, you're committing adultery if you get married again, and you're causing the gal to get, uh, commit adultery if she gets married again. All of a sudden, the law's getting really, really, really tough to fulfill right? And he's laying these things out to them because they think they've got it covered, but they don't. And he's showing them 
the, the, the fact that they're not on track, oaths, they would take oaths and they would do it by like the gold of the temple, okay? And if they broke their word, basically lied and were not faithful to their word, which God does not like, if they did that, they're like, well, you know, it's just the gold of the temple. And Jesus says, you know what, which is, which is the holy thing? Which makes it holy, the gold or the fact that it's in the temple? You know, you, you can't dodge like this. So there were liars, retaliation. You've heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. They were using the, law, the word of God to exact revenge. I'm going to get my pound of flesh from you for what you did for me, to me, because the Bible says I can't. When the very purpose of that law was to make sure that somebody did not abuse justice and that the crime and the punishment fit, okay? The abuse of justice, that's what that was there for. But they used it as an opportunity to go for the throat. You did this to me, I'm going to make sure you pay. They do not follow the law of God as much as they thought. Love your enemies. Verse 43 You've heard it taught, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. People wig out when they read that, okay? I'll explain it in a second. But remember this point that we're looking at is the path of a disciple. Walking the walk that Jesus lays out for us. And he says, when you love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, you shall be called sons of your father in heaven because you're going to be acting just like your papa. You know, wouldn't it be weird? And I've said this before, it's raining and you, let's say you're driving down 12 and you got all these farms, you know, and all these crops and stuff. And you got somebody who follows the Lord and somebody who doesn't follow the Lord. And as you're driving down, it's like, this farm's getting rain. This farm's not at the same time, you know, and you're driving through these things where you're like, oh, you don't know God and you do know God and you know Jesus and you don't know Jesus because he's not giving you rain and he's giving you rain. And, you know, he doesn't do that. He is kind and good to everyone. All right? And so when we love those who hate us, that's what Jesus did. That's what God does. And so Jesus is, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And people get locked up on the perfect. It's like, well, I can't be perfect. Okay, this is where our language messes up, okay? God is perfect and complete in his goodness and righteousness and love. We are not. But with his help, the word for perfect means complete, 
mature. Remember, we're supposed to grow up into the likeness of Christ, which means we have to walk with Christ and be a disciple of Christ. So as we love others, as Christ loves us, we're acting like our Lord Jesus. We're acting like our Papa. And we're growing up. Anybody can fly off the handle and be mean to somebody and retaliate in anger. It takes a, I'm going to say, it takes a grown-up, okay? you got to be a big boy to not fly off the handle and argue and stuff. But why is it that when we get older, we can still act like children? Isn't that weird? You know, it's like, yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) You know, it's like, would you grow up, you know? And, you know, it's like, oh, man. We're supposed to grow up and to be like our daddy. But this is hard to do. This is really hard. There's hope, though. And then he goes on in chapter 6. Give to the needy. Prayer. Talking to the Lord. Keeping that connection. Fasting. Don't be a hypocrite. Prayer. Don't be a hypocrite. Where's your heart? Verse 19 of chapter 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Not that having things are bad, but like the rich young ruler, he was holding on to things that were going to be lost rather than holding on to the things that were eternal. You know? And Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The way of God, the way of Christ, that narrow way, is one that is singularly focused on the Lord, the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus says, you know, and now I'm losing it. Where do, okay, it's where Jesus says, you know, don't worry about anything, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live, or, or any of that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. He's got it covered. And so it's that path. It's that life, the life focused on Christ. You know? So where's, where's our heart? Don't be anxious about things. And, uh, oh, hey, there it is right there, down in verse 20, uh, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. Um, but we don't need to worry. When you have a child whose parents love them, mommy or daddy love them, and they know it, they don't worry about stuff. They don't worry about where dinner's coming from. They don't worry about what they're going to wear. They don't worry about where they're going to sleep. Because mommy and daddy, they got it covered. They're in that relationship. When we deviate from the Lord and the things of the Lord and we start doing our own thing, then we start to to worry. Oh man, does God still love me? Does God still care? Or when we don't have a close relationship with the Lord and we see him in a way that isn't correct, we see him just as a judgmental, harsh dictator, we're going to be afraid all the time. 
if we see him as, well, I don't know if I can trust him or not, we're going to be afraid. But we don't need to be. We just stay close to him. And he takes care of everything. Moving on. Judging people. This is a one that a lot of people talk about. It's like we're not supposed to judge people. Yes and no. Okay? We're supposed to judge fruit. We are not supposed to be judgmental. Okay? And that's the issue here about the log in your own eye and the speck in your brother's eye. We tend to be critical of other people and we don't look at our own sin and our own shortcomings and failures. Jesus didn't, if anybody had the right to just ream people for their sin and failure, it's Jesus. But he didn't. As a matter of fact, he took our sin upon himself. He bore our sin. He bore our transgressions because he loves us. And so when we see a brother or a sister that's doing something that's not good, that's sinful, that's hurting the relationship or their life, the relationship with the Lord or their life, we need, if we really love them, to speak the truth in love. Hey, I care about you so much. And this is not good for you. This is what God says. And I'm here for you. I'll pray for you. Let's work it out together. See, that's what Jesus does for us. I'm here. I'm your intercessor. I'm, I'm walking with you. We'll deal with this. He called people plain concerning their sin and then extended a hand to help them. Okay? This is the path. Verse 7, chapter 7. I'm so glad this is here. Ask, all right, and, and I'll give it to you Greek-wise, okay, because this is what it really says. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and it will be open to you. For everyone who keeps asking will receive, and the one who keeps seeking will find, and to the one who keeps knocking it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, I will give him a stone, or will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the context here, it's like, this is the way to live your life. This is the way to walk. I can't do this. I can't do it. Well, ask. Seek. Knock. In one of the other Gospels, this a similar, uh, it's, it's stated a different way where it's like, how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. This is the fruit of the Spirit. I can't do this. So Father, Papa, 
will you fill me with your spirit? Help conform me into the image of Jesus so that I look like you, so that I have the family resemblance. I can't do this, but I want to do this. Will you help me? That is a prayer Papa will answer. I'm the kind of kid who wants Papa to answer it all now, okay? Look, God, I don't like where I'm at. I know it's not where you want me to be ultimately, so let's just get this thing over with. Just boom, you know, do a full-blown makeover, tear down the house, build it upright and all that. And it's like, he doesn't do that. He, it's like that, I feel like, it's like going under the anvil and the fire again, time and time again. Where it's like, yeah, I've, I've, I'm working on you, but he's got to put me into the fire and it brings up those impurities and stuff. And like, has anybody ever seen somebody like forging steel or whatever at a, okay? And you know how where they're hammering on the anvil and the sparks are flying? Those are impurities that are blowing out from the metal. And that's what God does to us. You know, he gets us in that furnace and it brings to the surface the gunk. And then boom, he says, all right, you want to be like me? We'll do it. You see a beautiful statue like Michelangelo would make, right? The hammer and the chisel. All right, you want to look like this? Here comes the hammer and the chisel. Wham! But it's not done maliciously, right? When a sculptor is chiseling on a rock, he is very precise and very careful because he doesn't want to ruin his masterpiece, right? Right? When a craftsman is crafting a work of art or a tool he, in the fire, he wants to make sure that it is done perfectly. He does not want to destroy his work. He wants to purify it, shape it, so it can become everything that he wants it to be. Does that make sense? So when God does that, it's because he loves us. It's not easy, but it's good. It's good. Because he doesn't just want converts. He wants us to be conformed into the image of his son which requires discipleship. And being conformed to that image takes time. It's a lifetime. Then he goes to the golden rule. This just amps it up even more. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, that sounds easy enough. I started a new position at work and I have to do uh, training, you know, on how to treat people in the office place and all that, which is weird because we're working remotely. But anyway, you know, still how to treat people in the workplace and all of that. And I, I understand it. But as I was going through the little lesson that I had to do, it came up the platinum rule. And I'm like, the platinum rule? Okay, I know the golden rule. Platinum is more valuable. I wonder what this is going to be. And it was... Treat people the way that they want to be treated. And I chewed on that and it's like, okay, I, I get the point, but what if the way somebody wants to be treated isn't good for them? Hmm, 
Just a thought. See, we put spins on this. And some people will say, you know what? Jesus isn't the first person to teach that. You see in Buddhism and Hinduism and all sorts of places. When you see this, it's generally, if not always, I haven't found an exception to this, but there might be out there. It's in the negative. Don't do something to somebody that you don't want them to do to you. Okay? So by very nature, you can keep that by doing nothing. If you don't want somebody to lie to you, don't talk to them. You know, and you're not going to lie to them. You don't have to say anything. You know, you don't have to interact with them at all. You can distance yourself from a person and not do anything that you wouldn't want to have not done to you. Jesus puts it in the positive. Do to others what you would have them do to you. This is radical. This is hard. If you're distraught and suffering and you're hurting, do you want somebody to stand by you and be there for you and undergird you and help you? Yeah. See that person over there who's distraught and hurting? And the Lord says, go over there and do to them what you would have done to you. Ooh, okay. Do you want somebody to correct you when you're doing something that's going to hurt you and is damaging to your life? Not really, but yeah. <coughs> Well, you need to go talk to your brother or sister over there because they're in sin and they need, to, they need to repent. And I want you to go and be there for them and help them. Okay. Um, hmm. You want somebody to help you out if maybe you lose your job and you're financially in tough times? Well, yeah, that'd be awesome. You know what? The guy down the street got his wife and two kids. He just lost his job. Go help them out. You see the difference? That's radical. That is radical. And that's why this is very narrow. This is a Jesus thing. You don't do this stuff naturally. We don't love our enemies naturally. We don't do to others what we want done to ourselves naturally. This is Jesus' walk here. Thank God we can ask and seek and knock and say, Father, help me do that which you want me to do. Thank God the scriptures say, you know, he will work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He doesn't just say, do this. We'll catch you on the flip side. That'd be horrible. And we'll look at what he does in just a minute. So on the heels of this, he talks about judging the fruit. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. There's a narrow way. False prophets want to pull the people of God away from the Lord. Look at the prophets that we looked at in the Old Testament, how God spoke through them, and you had the false prophets who were coming in the name of God, luring people away with an easier path. 
right? Oh, no, 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 don't listen to Jeremiah. God says it's going to be cool. We're not going to go into captivity. Don't pay any attention to Isaiah. God told me this. Oh, that's a lot easier than what Isaiah said. So Jesus is laying down a life for the disciple. But there are those that are going to seek to take us off the path. We have to be careful. We have to judge their teaching, judge the fruit. Because not everybody in the church and not everybody who claims to be a Christian is. Wish it weren't so, but that's the way it is. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what's the will of your fa the Father? That we would believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verses uh, 38, 39. John chapter 6, verse 40. Talk about the will of God for us to be in relationship with Christ. Okay, that's what he wants. The crowds came and said, Lord, what do we need to do to be working the works of God? This is the work of God, Jesus says. Believe on the Son in whom he sent. Follow Jesus. That's the work. There are a lot of people in the church, in ministry, who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How is it that somebody can do something in the power of God and not know God? That's the way I was taught and used to think about it a long time ago. But look at what it says and the context of what it says and what we've seen in the Old Testament. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Okay. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? All right. Now let's look at the big picture. You can do something in the name of somebody, but not have the backing or approval of that person. Okay. Think of the Crusades. The church went out and fought the Crusades in the name of God. God did not authorize that or command it. The Spanish Inquisition was done in the name of God. God did not authorize or condone that. That was not Christ-like at all. The prophets who were opposing Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, and the rest were preaching to the people lies in the name of God. No, no, God said this. And we saw where God would say, I didn't say that. They're saying I put a burden upon them. I didn't put a burden upon them. No. Well, what about casting out demons? What about mighty works? Satan is a counterfeit. Okay? You remember the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? And they go to this guy who's demon-possessed. And they go, 
in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the demon says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. You? I don't know who you are. And the demon tore the seven of them apart, left them running out of the house naked in fear. You can do something in somebody's name. It doesn't mean that God's behind it. The Antichrist and the false prophet will do signs and wonders, but they are not doing it with God's power. It's the counterfeit, okay? We have to be careful. And so, in verse 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, you hear it, you live it, you do it, okay? We put it into practice. We'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, all the stuff that I've just said, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. It takes time and hard work to get down to bedrock to put the foundation of the house on. It's not easy, but it's the best. We want shortcuts. We want the easy path. It doesn't work. I was thinking of my uh, up-and-down weight loss program. Okay? As you can probably tell, I'm haven't changed really at all since I started two months ago because I'm like this, you know, wave tossed upon the seas, you know, back and forth, up and down. And the reason why I bring that up is because I know what I need to do, but the doing of it is not so easy. I know what I want to do, but it's hard. It means my life has to change. I have to work at it. You know, I wish you could do like they say on the radio, hey, just take this pill twice before, you know, each meal and you're going to have six-pack abs in three days. You know, come on, you know. But people buy into it because we want the quick and easy way, all right? Hey, here's how you can get to heaven without surrendering your life to Christ. Here's how you can have it both ways, ride the fence and everything will be good, you know. You want to be like Jesus without the sweat? Jesus sweat blood. You know, I mean, it's, it's not easy. It takes work. But we got a great personal trainer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Okay, and we're going to see that in a second. Chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 to do the work of the ministry, to cast out demons, preach the gospel, heal the sick. Verse 24 of chapter 10, and he's talking about how they're going to receive persecution. He says, a disciple, we've got that same theme running. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, remember the Pharisees were calling him basically Satan, okay? He was casting out demons by Satan's power. 
How much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is like, don't be astounded or shocked when they start attacking you. They attack me, okay? And if you're doing what I do and living like I live and act like I act, you're going to get it too. It's just the way it's going to be. Chapter 11, verse 26, 28, I'm sorry. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Discipleship. Jesus is talking to the people and saying, look, you're run down, worn out. You're trying to keep the law. You're trying to be perfect. You're trying to do this. You're trying to do that. You're running the rat race and you're getting nowhere fast. Come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. And you've heard me say this, right? The yoke, it's, it's tailor-made. That's the way they did this to that animal, that specific animal. So it fit them perfectly. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, he says, it fits perfectly you. Okay, this fits you. And my burden is light because what they did was they would take that yoke and they would yoke the inexperienced animal, let's say ox, okay, like me, to an experienced ox, Jesus, and the mature pro gently walks alongside the newbie and helps the newbie learn the ropes. And they walk in tandem the path that is set before them. Together, the bulk of the weight on the one who has the power and the experience and we learn from him. All we got to do is keep in step. We don't have to figure out how to do the work. He's got that. We don't have to figure out how to be strong enough. He is. We just follow. Okay? I love this here. All this stuff I look at and I go, I can't do this. And then I hear those words. Keep asking keep seeking, keep knocking. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Take my yoke upon you. I'll help you, okay? You're not doing this on your own, Ernest. It's you and me. There's a song that uh, a band called Down Here does, and it's one small step, two at a time. And I love it because it's just taking these little steps forward in our walk with the Lord. But He's right there taking the step with us. So two steps at a time, we're moving forward as he walks with us this path of life. And then wrapping it up, chapter 13, it drives home again the point, and I won't go into them, but you can read this. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He talks about the parable of the sower, parable of the weeds, leaven. 
what we see here, especially with the leaven, the weeds, is reiterating that fact that there are those within the church that do not know the Lord. There are tares. In the parable of the, in the, parable of the sower, the tares choke out the wheat and they don't develop well. There are those within the body of Christ who do not know Christ who choke out the people of Christ so they don't develop. Okay? The birds of the air, okay, the mustard seed, um, it's small, but it grows big and the birds of the air fill the, the branches. People go, oh, so many people get to come and be a part of God's kingdom. That's not what it's talking about there. Birds when it comes to prophecy and it comes to visions and dreams, always are bad things, okay? We go all the way back to where we first see it happen with Joseph. And remember the baker? And the birds are going to come and they're going to take the food out of the basket on your head. Oh, what's that mean? Well, Pharaoh's going to kill you in three days. Oh my, that's not good, okay? And throughout scripture, when you see visions and dreams and parables where birds are used it's a bad thing in this parable of the sower the birds steal the seed that the sower has planted snatches it up before it can take root bad thing so remember just because somebody's on TV and they've got this ministry or whatever that's big or thriving or whatnot, do what Jesus says, listen. Listen. Judge the fruit. Because there's a path that Jesus wants us to walk. And there are those who want us to divert from that. And I said even here, judge what I say. Okay, don't take what I say as, oh, that's the way it is. Don't do that. Now, I hope I'm in line with the word and in line with the Lord. Because if I'm not, then I'm going to get judged for it. And that's scary. Okay. But we need to be discerners. So that we don't get knocked off that path. So that we don't divert. Because... It's that narrow path of discipleship that leads to the full life that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, okay? I came that they might have life, Zoe, the fullness of what life should be and have it abundantly. But to have that, Jesus says that narrow path leads to Zoe. Life as it should be. And the enemy wants to knock us off course. Let's not let that happen. And let's just hold on to Jesus, who is always there for us to take us step by step on this path to be conformed into him as his image. The church in Antioch were called Christians. It's the first time it was used. They used it in a derogatory way. But what it meant was little Christ's. Oh, look at the little Jesuses. Look at the little Christ. It became a badge of honor. 
Oh, would it be that people could look at the saints of God and go, you look just like your daddy. Aha! Praise God, because when that happens, guess who's being glorified? Let your light so shine before all men that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Papa. We're blessed, he's blessed, glorified, and the world sees hope.